This episode is brought to you by the 35th Annual Meeting of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, working together for the global advancement of safe and healthy pregnancies. You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. Welcome back to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Over the coming weeks, we are pleased to present a series of recordings taken from the Hypertension Forum at the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine meeting held on the 4th of February, 2015. The subject of this meeting was the management of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy according to international guidelines, and we join this session as the moderator, Dr. Gene Chain opens the meeting and introduces the speakers. So the objective of this session is to uh, review international differences in the definition of preeclampsia and its management, highlight differences in our approaches to the management of these patients, review evidence behind guidelines, and really I think it's just to aid everybody in the room in kind of developing management strategies for all the patients that we see that are very, very ambiguous and difficult to manage, especially when we have conflicting guidance and when we uh, lack a lot of evidence for what we do. I think we have an all-star cast, except for that top guy. We have Dr. Martin. I feel like we should have, like, lights, and we can introduce them. They should come up and sit up front. We do have a table up front for you guys to sit at, so at some point, if you would wander up, that would be great. Um, we have Jim Martin, John Barton, and Baha Sabai all kind of giving us the ACOG perspective on preeclampsia. Peter Von Dadelson from Canada and J.J. Walker from the U.K., so hopefully they'll share their thoughts with us. Um, the ground rules for this um, is that four cases will be pre, uh, presented. One panel member will discuss the case in their country's guidelines with respect to management of the case, and we'll get input from the others, perhaps differing perspectives, and maybe there will be argument here or there or debate. Audience participation is definitely encouraged. I don't know anybody if you remember the celebrity death match from MTV, but it may turn into that. So I am going to try my best to keep that from occurring. We are going to try to keep the 30 minutes per case so we can get through everything, but certainly if we have a very lively and heated debate, we can kind of run over on things. With that in mind, our first case is going to be discussed by Peter Von Dadelzin from Canada, and it's concerning a 24-year-old G1 with uh, 6 grams of proteinuria and elevated pressure. Right, thank you. Um, so this is definitely the parochial Canadian perspective. Um, Although I'm originally a Kiwi and I spent most of my time training in the UK, so I don't really know where I'm from anymore. So here we are, paring down over the 49th parallel to the other corner of the continent. So in uh, 2014, the SOGC published new guidelines for the diagnosis, evaluation, and management of the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. There's an executive summary, which is online open at the journal JOGC, which is a Canadian ONG journal. And there's also an open access full document available at Pregnancy Hypertension. So it doesn't come in your pub, up in your PubMed search yet, but the whole document is there. And if anyone wants to have a look at one copy, I have one with me. And from that perspective that I'm, I'm going to make this presentation. So these are the questions I was given related to the case. Does this woman have mild disease or severe disease? Does her blood pressure warrant treatment? What fetal surveillance is indicated? When should this patient be delivered? And should this woman be managed as 
either an out or an inpatient. So what about the fact that she's got 6 grams of proteinuria, minimal symptoms, and a systolic of 156 and a diastolic of 106? In Canada, we've redefined severe disease. And what we've done, we have a diagnostic criteria remarkably similar now, I think, between all the international documents. But what we've said is that there are adverse conditions which should make you more concerned about the woman. And we have limited the definition of severe disease to criteria that we believe should mandate a delivery irrespective of gestational age to add clarity to clinical practice rather than merging diagnostic criteria or concerning features with indications for delivery because our perspective is that some people choose to deliver women on severity criteria that don't necessarily mandate a delivery, if that makes sense. So that's been our approach. That was our philosophical step that we took with this guideline. For example, headache and visual symptoms make you concerned. If a woman has eclampsia, we think she's got severe disease. Hopefully that sort of gives the flavor. In terms of cardiorespiratory outcomes, conditions, chest pain or shortness of breath, or oxygen saturation less than, the 97th, uh, less than 97% versus pulmonary edema requiring positive inotrope support. You'll notice that severe hypertension is not there. Renal, again, we've got acute kidney injury versus elevated serum creatinine. And sorry, we use SI units, not what Marshall calls SA units, which are silly American units or imperial units. Sorry, Marshall, I had to quote you. And in terms of hepatic, again, we're not worried. I'm not, at 24 weeks, I wait for my patient to develop HELP syndrome before I think about delivering her. I'm not trying to avoid help syndrome, but I certainly want to avoid a hepatic rupture or hematoma. So in terms of proteinuria, proteinuria testing does not need to be repeated once significant proteinuria of preeclampsia has been confirmed. So we would say that she doesn't have severe preeclampsia in Canada, right? We would not say that 6 grams of proteinuria or even 10 grams or 20 grams of proteinuria is a severity criterion. So does a blood pressure of 156 over 106 warrant treatment? Currently, what we say in women without comorbid conditions such as pre-existing renal disease is that you can make up your own mind because the data haven't been clear to give us guidance. But if you do have a comorbid condition, that your blood pressure should be normalized. However... As of last Thursday, we believe the state of the play has changed. And I'd just like to say, um, so the first author of that paper is Laura McGee. I'm Mr. McGee in my spare time. I have a conflict of interest, and I'm also the second author. But we believe the results of the CHIPS trial mandate normalization of blood pressure in pregnancy for maternal reasons without perinatal risk. That is our take-home message from the CHIPS trial. And I'm happy to debate that, and I'm sure it'll come up again. What fetal surveillance is indicated? So Doppler has RCT evidence to support it. There's insufficient evidence to recommend the use of the biophysical profile as part of a schedule of fetal testing in the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. In fact, in women with early onset growth restriction and women in the full PS cohort who had biophysical profiles, biophysical profiles were falsely reassuring and were so their use was associated with excess stillbirths and more adverse neonatal outcomes. Because you've got to remember that the biophysical was developed in Winnipeg 
another northern frozen city, especially this time of the year, in a normal cohort. So the negative predictive value in that cohort was fantastic. Absolutely brilliant, because there were no adverse outcomes. But once you apply it to a high-risk cohort, its performance diminishes, and you are likely to be falsely reassured. So therefore, we've argued against the use of the biophysical as much as consistency with other Canadian guidelines would let us. When should this woman be delivered? She's currently at 34 weeks. In Canada, again, we believe in Hippotat, so we think anyone with preeclampsia should be delivered at 37 weeks, unless they develop what we now call severe preeclampsia in the meantime, when you get on with it, by our definition. So women with between 34 and 37 weeks, so 36 and 6, prior to Hippotat 2, there was insufficient evidence. The data from the Dutch around Hippotat 2 imply that we should still be offering expectant management up to 37 and 0. But again, those data post-date the, these guidelines. Um, but at 37 weeks, we are, are advising immediate delivery. You'll lower your cesarean section rate if you do it. Should she be managed as an outpatient or an inpatient? What we're saying is inpatient care should be provided for women with either severe hypertension, and that's 160 over 110 in Canada, or that some elements can be offered as an outpatient with non-severe preeclampsia either through a day assessment unit or an antepartum home care program, however that is managed in your clinical setting. I do a lot of global health. I'm not sure this is the right advice for where I spend a lot of my time in South Asia or sub-Saharan Africa. I think these women should be in facility to keep them safe. But that's a difference between where we are privileged to practice and where the majority of our global colleagues um, struggle along. And finally, um, in reference to today's discussion, we actually undertook a systematic review of the current international guidelines. It was published in PLOS One towards the end of last year. So if anyone's interested, it is open access. Uh, so PLOS One 2014, Gillen, G-I-L-L-O-N, in the December issue of PLOS One last year. Thank you. Welcome back. Following the presentation by Peter Van Dazelden, the microphone was opened up for comments from the floor, beginning with a question from Dr. Lindheimer. That was an excellent presentation, but one quick question. In an article that we published in 1981, where I guess some of you weren't born or von Nitzberg or whatever, uh, even in the Naliparis, 15% of patients who present at that time with proteinuria and hypertension do not have preeclampsia but another disease. What tests would you do to rule for the differential diagnosis? Um, are you talking today or tomorrow? Um, at the moment, I mean, I, I, there's a whole panoply of tests. I mean, or do you, the minute you see hypertension and proteinuria in a pregnant woman, try to look for another renal disease? Yeah, or so, God forbid, look at the urine under my yeah, so, so there is a two-page table in the SOGC guidelines about preeclampsia mimickers. Um, but my working diagnosis in a woman who's over 20 weeks with new hypertension and new proteinuria is preeclampsia until proven otherwise, but she needs adequate assessment. There is a full workup to be done, which is blood tests and yeah, urine microscopy. Um, I happen to believe that placental growth factor is likely to help us in the future um, where we have clinical uncertainty. Um, there was a very good presentation of women with chronic renal disease who are devilishly hard to pull apart when you think that they might be developing superimposed preeclampsia um, and PLGF looked really good in terms of its performance in that cohort. So I, I, I do think that is 
um, potential for the future, and I, you know, it, it, depending. Remember that some of these renal diseases have a different form of treatment that you should utilize. So at least we should start thinking of a protocol that every time we see proteinuria hypertension in a pregnant woman, that certain important other diseases are ruled out that you might be able to work on before a lot of renal function. Yeah. So, so the SOGC guideline is cumbersome. I mean, it's about. Um, 30 pages, um, a bit shorter than the NICE guidelines, Jimmy, um, which are about 300, I think. Um, so we, we think there are usable length. The previous version of the SOGC guideline was the most highly downloaded guideline in, on the SOGC website. So it has been used clinically, but the, the, the list of mimickers and things to rule out, especially if you're not certain, if, if it's not clear, um, I think is useful. It's an, an important table. Dr. Martin. Peter. I'm confused about the uh, hypertension issue because I thought that Laura's and your study suggested that it didn't make a difference, tight versus... Yeah, so... Okay. And so, so I, I was a little surprised that you would... Uh, would you treat this woman with 150, 106? Yes, that's what I would say. I wouldn't have, yes. So before... Well, actually, I have been for about a year because I knew the data. Yeah. Um, but before that, I didn't. It's always good to be wrong, um, because I was a less tight controller. So not only was the frequency of, I mean, and you know, somebody called Jim Martin once published a cohort that showed that systolic hypertension was important as a, as a surrogate marker for stroke risk and death. Right, right. The confidential inquiries have done the same. And both groups have come up with the same number, so that's reassuring. Well, I know your results from that study did show a uh, decrease in severe hypertension. hypertension. So, so if, there, if there's equivalence for the fetus and you can avoid episodes of severe hypertension that have been associated with increased risk of stroke and death, then why offer less tight control if there's no perinatal benefit? So the, our argument, Laura's and my argument, and we've been very eloquent, I hope, um, exponents of the position in the past has been that there was a perinatal price to pay, but after randomizing 987 women and following them up and seeing what happened to them, the babies did absolutely the same. In fact, when you look at the numbers in the tables, there's actually a tendency towards bad events happening with the tighter control group. Well, for that case example, I would have expected the blood pressure over the next 12 hours from admission to go down anyway. Well, I was assuming it was a confirmed hypertension. Oh, okay. Sorry. I'm wondering if the, any of the panel members... Oh, sorry, of Dr. Course, Sabah. Again, I wouldn't let people... You know, I guess the problem with the CHIPS trial, it has so many flaws. Even though they call them mild hypertension, you know, many of their women were receiving medications at the time they were enrolled. At least 50% of these women weren't there. Some of them were at two more medications. Peter... It's telling you there was no difference. There was more than 30% difference in fetal growth restriction between the two groups. It's not There's significant, Baha. I know, but you see, you, their study is absolutely not powered. They can always say there is not significance when you have underpowered. The third important thing in their study, and actually a lot of this is going as letter to the editor about this. The third problem with their, really their study is that severe hypertension was not part of the outcome in their study. It was, it was predefined by no, her. It's, it's not written in the manuscript, all in the protocol. And finally, 
there were many issues in the study. First is extrapolating women who had chronic hypertension and women who had gestational hypertension, which is this patient is all about. So really, they didn't have power for either this group or of this group. This is why we really don't believe this data is compelling, and this is why the heart, lung, and blood is in the process of doing a multi-center study that's going to recruit at least 6,000 women to be able to answer this question. Dr. So Walker? Had right, a comment. Can we back to the first slide so we actually go back to the case? Yeah, this is actually the case. I actually wanted to ask the panel yeah. to kind of address right, the yeah. question of proteinuria. Right. There's the, the several things I would say. And, uh, first of all, just as a preamble, as, as advertising, as, as, as Peter has done, uh, I, 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 was, I was on the NICE guidelines and helped to write it, which has largely been what um, I've been practicing and developing the last 30 years. We, I also was chairman of the Confidential Inquiries into Maternal Mortality, we now have the lowest, lowest maternal mortality for preeclampsia in the world um, uh, and the lowest we've ever had in the last triennium, uh, four times less than Holland. We have no idea but it's in the United States, but there's no figures in the United States. <laughs> to to go, up, go back to this, is that um, this patient confuses me. Her proteinuria is too heavy um, for someone who's presenting with blood pressure like, like that. And I would then back up what Marshall is saying, that you want to consider whether she's underlying renal, uh, renal impairment. But while saying that, when she's coming in, we would treat um, a 156, 106, and we'd probably give her 200 milligrams oral betalol as a one-off dose, just purely to stop her getting any worse because you don't know what's going to happen next. We wouldn't give her any more therapy until we see what happens to her blood pressure. I agree with Jim. She may actually settle herself, and if she settles herself, there's no need to give her further medication. Um, we would admit her because we're concerned about proteinuric hypertension because of the risk of the mother, uh, again, having systemic disease carrying on and getting worse. Um, so the, once we admit her, give her a single dose of labetalol, see what happens to the hypertension, check her renal function by looking at creatinine, etc., to see whether there's something else going on there. If there's nothing else going on that we can find, uh, we will still consider that the, the, she might have institutional renal disease, and if, we, we, if we're concerned about her, we'll discuss it with our renal physicians and consider other aspects of things, like um, if, if it wasn't, she wasn't 34 weeks, we, we, we consider um, the use of steroids to see if that helps our proteinuria um, in, in a particular instance. But in this situation, 34 weeks with lower blood pressure, and see what happens. The thing is, you've no idea when, how long she's going to go for. So the decision is you don't deliver today. Um, you do fetal monitoring. Um, the, uh, the only fetal monitoring of relevance is probably like a volume helps you. We do non-stress tests, uh, but also umbilical Doppler. And then monitoring that over a period of time, uh, we would then make decisions to deliver depending on how well the baby is and how, how well the mother is. The probability is you'll deliver within the next 14 days because that's the average length of time someone like this can be managed uh, with antihypertensive therapy. She may actually settle very well, not only her blood pressure, but her proteinuria may go down, and then she'll be allowed home and monitored through a day unit. Uh, but that, that would be basically how we would, would follow. So you were talking about proteinuria settling down. Would you guys repeat no, the we, assessment? We don't, we don't. Right, so that would never be an end point. Proteinuria is not an endpoint. We don't repeat proteinuria. If it's there, it's there. And so we don't use that as a criteria. Right. Um, but the, um, if you lower blood pressure, sometimes then, then proteinuria will reduce per, anyway because of perfusion Absolutely. pressure. But uh, we, we don't repeat proteinuria. I wonder if the panel could comment on just the utility of assessing proteinuria at all because it 
seems to not matter at any level, whether it's there, whether it's not. We're delivering people at 37 weeks almost regardless. So. Well, I think there's a place to measure it, I mean, to, to assess it initially. Uh, the fact that she has six grams of proteinuria, or uh, take that to mean she's at least four plus or whatever right. test you want to do. Uh, the only thing I would add to what Jimmy was talking about was I would uh, – immediately wonder if this is a lupus case or some other right. situation and do a connective tissue workup on her. And uh, uh, But other than that, I think we do pretty much what you said. Again, we really disagree with Peter about the fetal testing. We are in the United States do not believe there is any value for Doppler in the absence of fetal growth restriction. So really for a woman who have hypertension or preeclampsia, our primary mode of testing is the NST and biophysical profile. I disagree with him that really the Doppler is more reliable than the biophysical profile. Actually, we had recently two cases where the biophysical profile was abnormal. And because of the Doppler, you know, was still normal, it didn't reach reverse. And two babies died very early. So really, we don't believe that Doppler is the primary modality unless the hypertension preeclampsia is associated with fetal growth restriction. I think Peter had a comment, too, so if you pass the mic. <laughs> there's um, there's so, a couple seats in here if you want them. So uh, about protein area, um, in the absence of more sophisticated testing, um, heavy protein area is a risk factor for stillbirth. So from the mini-pairs cohort where, where we worked in l low- and middle-income countries to develop a model that can be used in settings without laboratory tests, heavy proteinuria is a risk factor for stillbirth. So um, I don't think we should abandon uh, proteinuria testing, but I think dipsticks are as bad or as good as the other tests. So I must confess I'm very dipstick-oriented. Um, yeah, um, about the N N the NIH trial, um, as long as we're, I, I'm encouraged, you're fine to do it. I mean, the NIH has money to burn at the moment. Um, the the only thing is that I would expect the women to sign an informed consent that reflects the results of CHIPS. As long as that is done, Baha, as long as there is complete clarity around the fact that CHIPS has published, um, then I, I, I think it's good and we should work on definitions and make sure that the data are analyzable in an indiv individual participant mental analysis at the end. All right. Are, are yeah, there any questions not, from the audience? I'm sorry. I've no, been really, very neglectful. I, I again, but really it's very important, you know, everybody here really needs to realize we should never, ever change practice based on one trial. I hope we are hoped all of these years about the calcium standards trials, aspirin trials, the stand trials, which now is very commonly used in Europe. And now when the study was done in the United States, it shows there is no benefit. This is the problem with Peter. He's so pre-obsessed because they did the trial. He can't believe that we can find they're absolutely 100% wrong. I think it's really BS to say we're going to have a consent form based on your result. Now you can ask. Okay, I'm sorry. Now we can ask. In the back, yes. So I wanted to make one comment on the chips trial. There's one thing you have to remember is in the chips trial, the, the, the type control that was actually maintained at 80 millimeters and 
in currently in the United States, we a lot of, of, of OBGYNs are maintaining blood pressures on these patients of as low as 120 over 60 or 70. So too low, we have to be careful on it. And CHIPS trial didn't address that study because it was in the tight and low control. And my question to the panel really is about our current guidelines that came out on hypertension in pregnancy by the ACOG and SMFM about gestational hypertension patients being induced at 37 weeks based on the HYPATAT trial. Um, if you have a 37-week uh, pregnancy with mild gestational hypertension only, nothing else, um, and completely long, closed cervix in a parazero, uh, we inducing them for four days and then suctioning them. And clearly, the, the guidelines say that we don't increase C-section rate. However, um, you know, in all the, the um, other data has shown that induction of labor with an unfavorable cervix does increase C-section rates without currently increasing population of obese women, many to have gestational hypertension alone. Dr. Walker. The UK NICE guidelines suggest that you, once someone's blood pressure is over 150, 100, you will give them antihypertensive drugs to bring it down below 150, 100. And therefore, you can get it lower than that if you want, but that's not the aim. You just need to get it below 150, 100, because that's what we think the risk, uh, the risk is. Normally, that would mean they'll be running about 140, 90, and they are thereabouts, or sometimes slightly lower than that. So we're not trying to get them back down to um, subnormal ranges or, or, or normal ranges. Um, so I think that that's quite important. The other thing about Hippotat in, in the UK when we wrote the NICE guidelines, Hippotat was just coming out and we got pre-publication figures available and to some extent we were uncomfortable with it because we didn't quite believe it and, the, and so for the preeclamptics, that is the proteinic hypertension, we, we give advice that once they're 37 weeks you should be considering delivery along with all the other factors available and discuss that with the woman. In gestational hypertension, the non-proteinuric, we would not deliver at 37 weeks if all, everything else is stable from the mother and baby, but we would be aiming to deliver at 39 weeks because all the evidence suggests that 39 to 41 weeks are, is the sort of best time to deliver anyway, so therefore 39 weeks is what we aim for. Just a comment of induction. There is actually no evidence that induction of labor increases its own section, and so therefore, although it's a common held belief, all the randomized trials, all comparative trials, have all shown that induction of labor does not increase your cesarean section rate. And if you, it's certainly true if you have an unfavorable cervix and you induce them, you have a high section rate, but they would have a high section rate anyway if you didn't induce them. So there should be no fear about induction because of the morbidity you might cause apart from the morbidity of the induction process itself. Um, so that you, but we would use a, a 37 weeks criteria for, for proteinic hypertension, 39 weeks for non-proteinic hypertension. Okay. Peter had a comment. It's partly to reinforce Jimmy's um, comment about induction. Um, there's a good meta-analysis done by the Albertans a couple of years ago, which looked at all the randomized control trials of induction versus expectant management for complicated pregnancies, so where there might be an indication for um, induction. Um, and at term and all the trials consistently show a reduction in cesarean section rate in the induction arms of around 40%. 
Um, so I, I know we were taught when we were obstetricians in short trousers that inductions increased cesarean sections um, because compared with spontaneous labor at the same gestational age, that is true. But compared with all the women who are pregnant who are similar to the women you've got in front of you, inducing her or attempting to induce her will actually reduce her cesarean section rate by about a factor of 40%. Dr. Sabah had a comment. You know, it seems everybody here agrees that induction of labor does not increase cesarean section rate. I don't know where this misinformation came from. It's The data from SMFM never showed that induction actually increased cesarean section rate. I think if you compare women who are induced to women who come with spontaneous labor, yes, women spontaneous labor have less cesarean. But this is not the question. The question is starting with a woman at certain gestation. If you induce her versus weight, induction is associated with lower cesarean section, whether it is in high risk or even in low risk women. Every study I'm aware of, if you start with one gestation, you induce or weight, induction has less C-section rate. Even for normal women, I'm not talking about complicated. Okay, there's a question in the back in the brown. So regarding proteinuria, if you look at the lower limits, many people still use the 300 milligrams in a 24-hour sample as the lower limits for criteria for preeclampsia. Um, I'm wondering if someone could tell us where that original criteria came from and why it's not concentration-based. And the reason I ask the question is uh, I'm sure many people have experienced a patient with 250, 290 milligrams of protein that for one reason or another that sample gets repeated, the volume is twice the volume, and they've now got uh, four to 500 milligrams of protein, and all of a sudden she goes from being not preeclamptic to preeclamptic when, in fact, her renal function and protein, protein concentration is really no different. Panel? Dr. Finn. Oh, sorry, a lot of running. I was always taught that that was the 300 came from the fact that that was the lowest amount of proteinuria the machines could pick up, but I don't... Uh, no, 300 milligrams, um, into, I mean, uh, Marshall's just walking back in the room and we'll probably cla- yeah. clarify it, but... Um, 300 milligrams was, was set as a threshold bec- because it's uh, in, uh, renal protein excretion is increased in, in, in pregnancy normally, but, so it's a higher threshold than for the non-pregnant population. I believe it's the upper 95th centile for, for normal pregnancy, so the normal threshold. Um, and uh, But the problem is it's a very flawed gold standard. At BC Women's, we did a cohort study, and Anne-Marie's in the room who actually did it. And of women who were at BC Women's, and we like to think we know what we're doing, 50% of 24-hour collections were actually either over or under collections, and they were equally divided between over and under collections. It's a very flawed gold standard, which is why protein-creatinine ratio doesn't necessarily look that good, because you're comparing it with a flawed standard. Um, so total uh, renal clearance and of protein per day is, prob- is more more important than the, than the absolute concentration, unless you create, um, correct for creatinine, which is what the protein-to-creatinine ratio does. We'll have one last comment by Dr. Walker. The, 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 the criteria originally came from Nelson in, in, in the mid-50s, when he defined pre, um, preeclampsia, and he used that as a criteria. But the other thing to remember, if you go back to Chesley's work, is that proteinuria and preeclampsia varies by 90, over 90% on, 
over an hourly basis throughout 24 hours. So you may well get someone who's proteinuria of, say, 300 at one minute, but it may well be 600, 800, 1.5 um, later on that day or the next day because it varies so in such a, a marked degree. That's why PCR, which is a time-limited measurement, can be so varied. And uh, so proteinuria is not a good, uh, a, a good, accurate, precise test. That's why it's a threshold. If you're over the threshold, then you don't need to repeat it again because you may get it different, but it doesn't make any difference. Let me tell you, you know, starting on March 1st, we're stopping doing urine protein in all of our clinics, period. I don't believe, you know, urine protein has any value in Western <coughs> countries. I think probably it's useful in developing countries because it's a way to get the patient into the system. At the present time, the ECHO guidelines say the only difference between women who have proteinuria or not, whether you do testing twice a week or not, so once the women have hypertension, we'll see, do testing twice. Like this, we can avoid all of this inconvenience for the patient, the hazards collecting urine. It's really the meaning to take these patients every time, give them a small cup, trying to aim to collect urine in it. This is why we decided there will be no more urine protein in any of our offices. At the first visit, the patient will get urine culture and urinalysis. We'll identify those who have renal disease. And then after that, no urine protein will be done in any patient. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. In the next episode, Dr. John Barton presents the second case from this session severe gestational hypertension, and we hope you will join us again then. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, Please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology. This episode was brought to you by the 35th Annual Meeting of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, working together for the global advancement of safe and healthy pregnancies, www.smfm.org.